Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. It's hard for the jury from just pictures to really visualize the injury and the effect on the individual. You know, what we've found through studies that jurors or people that see and hear things get it much better than people that just hear them. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, along with the always brilliant Yvonne Godfrey. <laughs> Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm not feeling super brilliant, but um, otherwise good. Well, I can see you in your uh, in your apartment. You look brilliant. Thank so, you. Uh, it must be the glasses. Yeah, exactly. Glasses always help. Yeah, they're clear. There's not even a prescription. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I am. I know. I, I like those. Uh, I like the glasses that are, are just for effect. Yeah. Um, they work especially well during trial. <laughs> um, so, um, well, Yvonne, I am super excited today. We have a. Um, uh, a legendary trial lawyer uh, on the show today. Um, I am so pleased to uh, say hello to Brian Panish from Panish Shea and Boyle in Los Angeles, California. And Brian's website um, is psblaw.com if you want to look him up. Welcome, Brian. Well, thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Well, we certainly appreciate your time, and uh, we've got just a fascinating case to talk about today. Uh, the case that we're going to be talking about is called Lowe versus Southern California Gas Company and Dominic Consolazio. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Yeah, I, I, I took some time to uh, to test that out. <laughs> um, a year, year and a half to get it down. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, well, Brian, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce you a little bit into you know and. Uh, you know, thank you so much for sending us your materials ahead of time. Uh, but Brian, um, you have done uh, a, a lot in your career. And let me just first start out by saying, uh, uh, Brian has uh, 75 verdicts and settlements over $10 million. Uh, some of the uh, sort of leading ones is a case that you tried against General Motors, uh, which was a $4.9 billion uh, verdict. 4.9. So that is a, that, that would probably make for a fascinating one to talk about uh, at some point down the road. Um, you've also had just a number of, uh, of uh, other uh, great results. Um, you know, I, I think you actually have another one over a billion dollars. It's uh, a $3.3 billion uh, case with LA County versus tobacco industry. And then uh, just a ton of verdicts in the 30, 40, 50 million dollar range. So, uh, I mean, that is uh, fantastic work. And, um, and then, you know, on top of that, the awards that you've gotten, uh, which are many, um, are, I'm just going to go through a few. Uh, first of all, you're a vice president with the Inner Circle of Advocates, which is comprised of the top 100 uh, plaintiff's lawyers in the country. Uh, you were named in 2017 as a uh, top 10 Southern California super lawyer, actually from 2009 through 2017. Um, you're named as the trial lawyer of the year by the California chapter of the American Board of Trial Advocates, uh, named in the top 20 lawyers in California in 2012. Uh, and then uh, I'm not going to go through all of these, Brian, uh, but you're, you're in the top 100 lawyers in California in 2017 by the Daily Journal and named as the best lawyer, lawyer of the year for aviation law in Los Angeles for 2018 
among just a number of other well-deserved accolades. So, uh, so again, we just want to thank you for coming on to the show. My privilege. Well, this uh, case that we uh, are talking about, and, and um, we've had the opportunity to just look at really the opening and closing, and um, it, it really Im involves, uh, you know, just some of the most disturbing facts from conduct of a, um, of a defendant during, a, during a, a, you know, what should have been, I mean, well, it was a serious traffic collision no matter what, but made all the worse by the conduct of the, of the defendant in this case. Um, but just to give a little bit of background, you represented Jason and Nina Lowe. Jason was a captain in the Air Force, had graduated from the Air Force Academy. Uh, he was on his way to work on riding a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. He was stopped for a stoplight. And while he was stopped, a, a truck uh, hit him from behind and, um, and uh, essentially pinned him between the motorcycle and the truck. And, uh, and crushed his legs. Um, and then as I saw that you described in your opening, uh, the truck driver sits there for maybe 20 seconds or so, and then decides to try and drive off with Mr. Lowe pinned uh, below his truck and literally uh, drug him uh, for, I think it was 150 yards uh, leaving just a, a trail of uh, blood and um, and skin and, and muscle uh, on the road. Um, and that's essentially the case. I mean, those are just uh, uh, tragic circumstances. So, um, so Brian, what, one thing I wanted to talk about in this case, and, and I, um, this is the first one that we'll have on this, this show, where the case was a, an admitted liability case. And um, what we mean by that is that the defendants came in and at least they admitted that they were at fault for the collision and they were admitted that, that um, they were at fault for, um, or that they had caused the injuries to Mr. Lowe. So, uh, so it's, it's a strategic move by the defense uh, when you really have um, you know, indefensible circumstances like what this truck driver did. Um, in an effort to keep the damages uh, down uh, as low as possible. And, um, and it sounds like that was the intent of the defense in this case, uh, Brian, because, uh, you know, when I read at least their opening, they tried to say that they were agreeing with you on just about everything. Um, but uh, that, that turned out not to be uh, true really at all. They, they essentially were uh, questioning every aspect of Mr. Lowe's damages. Is that right? Pretty much. I mean, they did admit that they, he caused a collision. Of course, it was on in a videotape that we were able to obtain from multiple locations. But they didn't admit punitive damages. And in the pretrial proceedings, another judge had taken away the punitive damage claim. But we did have the punitive damage claim against the individual, Mr. Consolazio. So even though the gas company was admitting liability, we were still able to get the evidence in as right. it pertained to our claim for punitive damages against Mr. Consolazio. They did get limiting instructions from the court, which were appropriate, and I believe the jury appropriately followed them, and they did make a finding for punitive damages eventually against Mr. Consolazio, as they should have, but had the judge not uh, eliminated our punitive damage claim against Southern California Gas Company, I believe we would have clearly prevailed, and later when we get into it, I'll tell you why. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I would love to hear that. And, and, um, you know, and just so I'm not belaboring the point, uh, the verdict that you were able to, uh, receive on behalf of the Lowe's was $41,864,102. And then am I right? It looks like, uh, the jury said yes to punitive damages against Mr. Consolazio. And then the, the case must've resolved after that. Cause I, well, actually, uh, what happened was we had the finding on a Friday and I over the weekend told them we'd settle for a certain number and not go forward with the punitive damage phase. They couldn't resolve it. We actually went through the whole punitive damage phase as the jury went out on deliberation, they settled for 46 million. One of the reasons is we had a made a pretrial offer of, 39 million, which would have been entitled to us to another four to five million in prejudgment interest, plus other things. So, plus the punitives against Mr. Consolazio, who it turned out had a significant amount of money, over two million in assets, which we never thought he would. And the jury was going to give what we asked for. They came back in five minutes with the verdict, but in the meantime, we reached a settlement. Okay. Well, I mean, that's uh, fantastic work and, um, and great that you could get it resolved and for, uh, you know, a, a tremendous amount. Um, well, Brian, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, I, I kind of just gave an overview, but how you approach a case where, um, you know, it's an admitted liability case. So they're trying to limit the amount of evidence you can get in of the, of the wrongdoing. Um, in order to just focus on damages and, um, and, and I, you know, saw through uh, your opening close. I mean, you, you spent a lot of time going through in detail, you know, just how much this had really affected Mr. Lowe and, you know, how this is going to affect him for the rest of his life, which, you know, obviously uh, played into the jury uh, giving you this, uh, this uh, uh, great verdict. Well, first of all, you've know, tried a number of liability admitted cases, and the key is obviously to still create some friction or fight, and most, mostly in an injury case with admitted liability, there's going to be a fight either on the residuals, what's the future prognosis, what's the loss of income, what are the medical expenses, that naturally is there. When you're in a wrongful death case and there's no evidence of the underlying facts other than that somebody died, it's more difficult. And in an injury case, though, it's not that difficult to create some fight. And in this case, they were pretty much fighting almost everything. They agreed to the past medicals, but they even fought the loss of income, maybe 10000 in the past, less than us. And of course, in the future, they said none. And they significantly fought the future medical expenses and, of course, the pain and suffering. So we had a a huge fight in a middle liability case that took, I think, 24 trial days to try the case and they were full days. Yeah. And that's what I was, that's what I was wondering about when I saw, you know, that, uh, you know, he comes in in the opening, the defense lawyer and says that basically we agree on everything. And then I'm reading that it's almost a month later when you're doing the closing, it, it, you know, makes me think, well, obviously you weren't agreeing on everything because it doesn't seem like it would take that long. No, there were a lot of disputes, and, and that's what's common in cases like this. Defendants want to gain credibility, and the main reason that they admit liability is so they look like you know they're, they're reasonable people. Now, in the voir dire, I'm able to address that and ask jurors, you know, the fact that they've admitted at least responsibility for the accident or the collision, 
Are you going to want to pat them on the back, give them a break, cut them a break, give them a discount? Because they've done that. And you want to make sure that the jurors are in the frame of mind that they shouldn't get any break. They shouldn't be ahead for that. But on the other hand, they don't want to hold it against them, the fact that, that they've done that. And, and I think we'll be able to do that. Certainly, throughout the trial, there have been various issues that were hotly contested. Yeah, and one of the issues I noticed, and, and so in my understanding, Mr. Consolazio, he had not admitted liability or, or he had not admitted punitive well, he damages? Really, he kind of admitted it, but he okay. didn't really say. And that's a whole other issue on his whole medical condition, which we found out as the case went on, which we had no idea because he never told anyone at the scene that he had any problems with seizures, that he said he had a seizure that day, that he blacked out or anything. And that included numerous witnesses that talked to him, police officers, jailers, uh, paramedics, everyone. He never admitted any, and never told anyone. So part of the argument was, did it really happen the way he said it did? Did he really have a seizure or was he just using that as an excuse? Right. And that's one thing that I was going to mention is some of the evidence that you had with Mr. Consolazio is that not only had he had had been diagnosed with epilepsy and a seizure disorder, uh, but had been uh, diagnosed um, several years before uh, this happened and, and had been told uh, by numerous medical providers that he shouldn't drive, um, you know, which uh, makes for uh, obviously... Uh, um, a compelling case, and and, um, and again, just uh, egregious circumstances involving him. Yeah, but the, but he never admitted that. He, his his position was that the doctor told him it would be her recommendation not to drive. I don't know how that helped him, but that's how they were spinning it. And in fact, he had been seizure free for a period of time. He said, but really, the the sad part of the case to me was that the judge in the pretrial did not allow it to go forward at the gas company when in fact he had had a seizure at work. People had noticed it in a big group meeting. He had been taken to the supervisor who he then talked into letting him go back to work. Should have never happened. In fact, as we were talking about, at the end of the case, jury went out to deliberate for a couple hours and they had a question. Someone said they have a question. It turns out the question was, your honor, as part of our verdict, can we include something that would require the gas company to adopt a policy so that this could never happen again? Now, of course, they couldn't do that. The judge said no, and immediately they had their verdict. But the jurors understood that there was more to it, that they didn't get to hear, and that this, this man should not have been driving. Yeah, and I saw that question, and those, that's one of those questions you get from a jury while they're out deliberating that just uh, makes you feel good, um, although you never they thought that was good for them, I heard. Right. Oh, I they did. How. I, I, I don't know how, but they, they're able to spin things quite well. They're actually yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think that was good for them. Uh, it did when I read it. It didn't sound good for him, but uh, you know, it, it, you know, as we all know, that sometimes when you get a question, uh, it, that can be just one juror asking a question, and may not be the, uh, well, the mindset well, of everybody. What I know is when you think you know, you don't. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> if you really think you have it, something's going to happen that shows you you don't really know, and you can't really know for sure. You can speculate all you want and it may, might make you feel good, but you could get something completely 180 degrees the other, other way.
This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services you can talk to bob melanie or anyone else on their team they are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com that's ltsatlanta.com so um and i did read it so the you had a punitive damages uh uh or an allegation against the trucking company and that and the judge decided to let the trucking company out on punitive damages actually it was a utility company yes the pre-trial the claim was number one that the acts weren't egregious enough which they didn't win on that but that in california you have to have the conduct ratified or approved by a managing agent and in this case they were saying the people that did it the judge decided this on summary judgment which I don't understand how she could. I, I believe it was a question of fact for the jury. She ruled against us, so that took out the punitive damage against the gas company, which then allowed them to admit liability also. Okay. Got it. And um, backing up for a second with um, Mr. Consolazio, how did it unfold in the case where you started to learn about the medical condition and its involvement? That's, that's a good question. So what happened was... Uh, we found out that the district attorney was pursuing a case against Mr. Consolazio. The way we found out was they had called our client and they wanted to talk to him about sentencing. And we didn't really know the case was going on, so we, of course, contacted the authorities. Uh, We get the runaround. Eventually, we get to the main district attorney. Oh, initially, the first DA, line DA, tells me, oh, well, this was a... A, uh, emer- a medical emergency and he had a seizure. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, we have these medical records that his lawyer, his criminal lawyer has provided to us. So I said, what medical records? So I immediately subpoenaed them from the lawyer because I didn't know who the doctors were. Right. The lawyer gives me the records, complies with the subpoena. I read them and I see this history. Then I subpoena these doctors and other doctors that I see, and we start being able to puzzle, put the pieces to the puzzle together. Then, in the course of depositions, we start noticing company depositions to see did they know. And then we find out that he had this problem at work. So there, were, there was great work done. Dan Dunbar in our office and Alex Bayer worked uh, really tirelessly in unturn, overturning every stone. In fact, they came up with this great evidence. Right. 
in fact, the doctor that he'd seen, he denied he had epilepsy, but she worked at the epilepsy center at Stanford. <laughs> and so uh, there was a problem. But it, it took a lot of great lawyering by these lawyers to come up with the evidence that enabled us to make this claim. And what we able to determine, we do quite a bit of focus group work before the trial, the jurors that heard, and what we did was we'd split groups up, jurors that heard all of the evidence, including the history of the seizures, gave much more money than the jurors that just heard it was a rear-end collision and there was no seizures involved. Obviously, right. they were not happy with the conduct. Right. Right. So, you know, and I, and I, I saw you make the, uh, the uh, in your closing, I think it was, uh, that, you know, you would never really know whether or not it was a seizure disorder or whether or not he had just, you know, intentionally run into the back of a motorcycle. Well, I don't um, think he intentionally did. Right. right. And, I, and we don't ever really know. He's the only one that would know. I mean, there is indicia of that would happen because I don't think he was intentionally going to run into him. Maybe he wasn't paying attention. And, but it was hard to tell. But he seemed to come through, and he was pretty active at the scene, talking to people, walking around, taking pictures. So I, I argued that if he did have a seizure, he didn't want to tell anyone because he knew he'd be in big trouble, which justified punitive damages because it was something that he even knew he shouldn't be doing. Right. What happened with the criminal charges? Well, eventually we talked to the DA, and, and we agreed that if he pled guilty to hit and run, that we would not insist on jail time. So what happens, he pled guilty to the felony. He was not allowed to drive. We don't want this to happen to anyone else. And he didn't have to go to jail and he was able to go back with his family, but he did have to plead guilty to, for what he did. Got it. So what, one thing I was wondering, what, what was his exact job with the Southern California Gas Company? So he was a supervisor and he was out in the field and he would drive around in this work truck. It was a, a gas company truck. They provided him the truck and he, you know, he was making over a hundred thousand dollars. He was, he had been there a long time, had been elevated up to a good position and he had a huge pension that he had gained and he was in supervisory position. Yeah, and you, and you, I think, alluded to earlier, he, you found that he had over $2 million worth of assets on his own? Yes, he did. Um, well, and, and I, I did see, we didn't talk about this, the, the seizure that he had at the job, um, he was in a meeting with everybody, and I think it was described that he uh, went on for about 15 minutes talking about being inside of a hole or something like that. I'm deep down in this hole. I can't get out of this hole. And he's just rambling, not making sense. Interesting what we did find out through the medical records and the doctors that he'd reported. Now, he didn't admit this later, but he had reported that they usually happened when he didn't have sleep and they uh, earlier in the morning. And he doesn't know when they're going to come on. So he kept telling me, well, the doctor said it was just a recommendation not to drive. I said, well, you never know when these things are going to happen. They can be deadly. So why are you driving? Right. It, it right. Was, it's incredible. So this happened early in the morning. He had flown back late the night before from San Jose where his wife was living. He lied about the number of hours of sleep. He tried to tell me eight, but he had... Uh, when they did a field sobriety test, they asked him when he'd last slept, and 
it was a certain time. And when you do the math, it was less than six hours. So there were a lot of evidence that he did, in fact, have the seizure. The fact that he waited 22 seconds, all this being on videotape from multiple angles before he left. But then he executed the, le executed the left turn perfectly, waited until all the cars left, stayed in his lane, and drove 450 feet, dragging um, Jason Rowe underneath his vehicle. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, t and, and talk about that a, a little bit about how you presented the damages uh, picture for your client because, um, you know, and I, I saw he had some, you know, really terrible injuries to his legs. Um, but, but give us a, a, an overview of how you went about that. Well, first of all, Jason had a severe degloving injuries. He underwent uh, extensive surgeries in the hospital only a month in light of everything he went through. But he had quite a bit of uh, rehabilitation, additional skid grafting surgeries. He had lost his hamstring and uh, muscle. They had to take the, the latissimus muscle, your lat, and transplant it from his back to his hamstring. He was a very physically fit guy as being an Air Force Academy grad as a big part of the training fitness and uh, physically and mentally. So he was really sharp. He had served two terms or two tours in one in Afghanistan, one in Qatar. He was in tremendous physical shape. So one thing we were looking for, we found also doing this pretrial work is that jurors that were more physically active gave more money because they could relate to it. And the reality is, Jason, his injuries were horrific. The surgeries were terrible. The scarring was bad, but he was able to walk and he was able to do things. He went back to work in seven months. Wow. Basically doing the same job, not as well, but he was still in the military. Now they gave him a, a waiver for the physical fitness test, but he was still in the military. Ironically, the Friday before the Monday when the accident occurred, he had been offered a job where he was gonna leave the military and be making 150,000 and doing great in this new job, which of course he couldn't take, although they thought that it was still open. So when you looked at him with his clothes on, he looked great. I mean, he looked fit. He looked great. So what we were concerned about is I didn't want to have the jury see him, and then he, he looks great, and then hear me asking for all this money, going, well, what's wrong with the guy before they heard the story? Because as I told him in the opening, you know, you can't judge a book by the cover. He may look good with his clothes on, but in reality, he's not good. So we were able to build up the damages through the witnesses before he came. So the jury was prepared, but also so they didn't think he was okay, like the defense was saying. And we had some tremendous doctors. We had him come into court, Jason, and in shorts, take his shirt off and show the jurors in a quick but respectful fashion. I didn't want to have to make him keep coming back to court and taking his clothes off and he was embarrassed. He's a very prideful person. He didn't really want to do it. I had to talk him into it just so the jurors had a feel. And, and one of the things about Jason Lowe that made the jurors like him so much because he was a stoic person, but he didn't complain. He minimized what his problems were. He tried to do the best he could. And my experience is the jurors don't penalize you for that. They, they reward you for trying to do everything you can to get back out there. And, and they understood and they, they gave him time. They gave him future loss of income, which they said he wouldn't have. 
because they wanted him to take some time off to get the future surgeries that he needed to get his life at least as normal as it could be under the circumstances. Wow. I think that's really interesting, especially the idea of having him in the courtroom, you know, getting him to agree to sort of show his injuries in person, wear the shorts and everything, because I think a lot of people would have done that through video or, or through photos. Is that something that you try to do in a lot of your cases? Is it something that you thought was just really necessary for this case? It depends on the cases, but I think a lot of times it's hard for the jury from just pictures or to really visualize the injury and the effect on the individual. And many times I have doctors do examinations to show the limitations in the range of motion, to show the scarring, to show the neurological deficits. And I think that's very helpful for the jurors. You know, what we've found through studies that jurors or people that see and hear things get it much better than people that just hear them. And with right. the interactive exam going on, now the jurors can't ask any questions, but, and the doctor really needs to be neutral and most judges allow it. It is allowed under the law as long as you keep it within certain parameters. But I wouldn't do it in every case. Right. It's on a case-by-case -case basis. The, uh, so I, I wanted to be clear. So did you not have uh, Mr. Lowe in court every day with you, or you just brought him no. in? Okay. He only came when he did the exam, and then he came for his testimony. And his gotcha. wife was there more often, but it was even hard for her. And I asked him, you know, do you want to be there? Because obviously the client, it's their case and it's their right. If they say they want to be there, then they can be there. That's fine. I'm not going to tell them not to be. But he said, I said, do you want to be there and hear that? He says, I've already lived through it. I don't need to hear it anymore. I said, yeah. okay, I'm good with that. So how far was it into the case when, uh, I mean, how many days into the case when the jury first saw uh, Mr. Lowe? I would say two weeks. But yes. they did see pictures of him and things and heard all about him before, before they saw him. And then it was another two weeks before he testified, probably. Wow. Right. And you, and a, and a lot of before and after type witnesses, witnesses who knew him both. You know, not as many as you would think, you know, they're obviously in a case like this. One of the defense arguments is always, you know, cumulative evidence, how many pictures right. you need, how many witnesses. And I also think that as the plaintiff lawyer, you don't want to overdo it. So as far as damaged witnesses, non-medical treaters, I had uh, his wife, who was also a plaintiff and had a claim. I had a friend of his that he grew up with, spent a lot of time with. And I had his sister. And then by uh, Skype, a commanding officer of his who is now in Japan. But that was it. That was all only witness. And there were, I had a list of 20 people. But they all were going to say the same thing. And his friend was good right. to talk about the before and after. His sister from the familial uh, connection and what they, you know, growing up and all of that. And then his, his uh, commanding officer, like what kind of soldier he was and his physical condition, because he was pretty, you know, they were, he was pretty by the book, the military guy. He wasn't going to talk about anything that was anywhere out of bounds. Right. Yeah, we always struggle with that as well when, you know, when you talk about, having people come in and, and uh, you know, give a, a picture of what uh, the plaintiff was like beforehand. But, but yeah, I mean, five to six is usually the number that we settle on as long as they're talking about different things and not overlapping. 
Well, and I think, you you know, one of my slogans that I live by is less is more. And right. I really believe that jurors appreciate lawyers that get to the point that don't belabor things, that don't go asking the same questions over and over because they don't think the jurors are getting it. And they always tell me, you know, we're not dumb. We got it the first time. We didn't need to hear it the next four. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. <laughs> Well, what about for for um, Jason, your client? Could he, you know, by the time trial rolls around, did he have? Did he still have a good recollection of this whole trauma of this whole event? He did, but he didn't uh, remember everything. And you know, one of the best questions that I'd asked him, they'd asked him in his deposition. You know, were you thinking about dying when you're lying underneath that truck trying to get out? And typical as to who he is, he says, only thing I was thinking about is how I was going to survive. Wow. How I was getting out of there. Yeah. yeah. That's the kind of person he is, always trying to be positive, trying to get to do something about it. And he was his, his answers were incredible. And they cross-examined him probably 45 minutes or more. They didn't give him a free pass. They, they were asking him certain things, and he was great. And eventually they realized they weren't getting anywhere. Right. You mean they cross-examined him for 45 minutes in front of the jury? Yes. Wow. I mean, that takes guts. Well, I mean, you know, if I was in their position, I probably would too, because, you know, then I'm going to, then the lawyer's going to get up and say, well, they didn't even question him. Right. right. I I think you kind of have to, and the lawyer did it in a nice way. He was respectful and, and he wasn't being argumentative or demeaning, but just the fact that some of the questions you ask, they kind of look like you're downplaying it. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and I should say, you know, when when you say that uh, uh, that Mr. Lowe was an active person in in uh, top physical shape, I mean, some of the examples that you gave of him uh, were that um, you know, for his honeymoon, a uh, nice honeymoon, his uh, bachelor party, he decided to go hiking in Utah with his friends. Uh, he was played, I think, played softball, basketball, and every other sport they... Like football, he was a right. runner. I mean, they're all... the One of the fun things is they take the platoon and they go out for a you know, six-mile run. Right, right. That's, that's the like fun, fun thing. thing they like to do. <laughs> but he also, he was, you know, snowboarding. He was mountain climbing. He had just climbed Half Dome. There was a great picture, and I couldn't have made this myself, uh, of him with his friend climbing Half Dome and him wearing a shirt that's the American flag. Right. Wow. <laughs> well, and, and one of the other things you had was the, uh, there's a, the Tough Mudder, which is a, uh, I, which I've actually run a couple of times, this mud race. Uh, and there's a 24 hour long Tough Mudder that they do. Uh, and uh, he actually did that 24 hour race. With, with his the, wife. Yeah, which is insane. She, she, she was also, you know, trem- she's a tremendous person. And the jurors knew it. Now, one thing the defense, this is a good story. So, before the trial, we learned that, that she was pregnant. And we never said they couldn't have children or they weren't. But I did say, when they do have children, you know, think about what it's like if he's playing softball or they want him to pitch to them. And he's not going to be so easy for them. So throughout the trial, they kept fishing around for that. And one, they asked one of the witnesses, and I heard they're trying to have the children or something. And she said, yes, he's pregnant. So they go, whoa, they thought that was a big deal that we weren't that we were trying to hide that, that she was pregnant. But when she came in, I mean, all you had to do was see her. And, you know, you've seen these pictures. She's a very attractive, slender woman. And when she came in, 
she, you could tell she was pregnant. <laughs> so what I would argue, you know, I argued, look, they're trying to you know, hold us up for that. I mean, the, we weren't hiding anything here. It's pretty apparent. So <laughs> right, right. anyway, right. you know, they, they would try to seize on anything because they didn't have a lot to go. With. Right. Right. But they could have right. settled the case, but they thought the jury would hold it down. And that's why they went to get to trial. They didn't go to trial because they thought we were asking for too much. They went to trial because they thought they could hold it for less. Yeah. And then that is the strategy behind, uh, you know, uh, admitting liability is, is to you get in there and well, then you're right. just I told on the, the jury at the end of the day, this lawyer is just doing his job and it's his job to hold the damages down. That's the only job he has. Yeah. Did you, you mentioned, um, when you were focus grouping this, that, that, um, jurors who had, who were physically active, um, tended to award more money or understand some of the loss a little bit better. Did you, in your actual trial, did you do something with that information to try to, to, to identify those jurors in voir dire? Definitely. I would ask them about that. Um, you could just look at them, you know, some people you just know. Yeah. They're into working out. They're drinking water all the time. They're eating on the breaks. Right. Uh, but no, I was definitely looking for them, and I would talk to people. Is that important to you? What do you like to do? What kind of activities do you go? Do you do things with your family? Biking, running, you know, hiking, playing sports, things like that. And it was just our experience that people that really value that are going to give a bit more money for that loss. Right. What was the uh, the breakdown of the jury in your case? And I, and one thing I failed to mention at the beginning: this case was tried out in Los Angeles County, so if, uh, where, where it was tried. But what what so was the breakdown the, as far as the, well? There's twelve jurors. I think it was more seven women, five men, uh, mostly college graduates. Most uh, as far as the demographics, it was probably. Uh, I don't think there were any African-Americans, maybe one, and there was uh, maybe two or three Hispanics and the rest, you know, Caucasian jurors. Uh, several of them had very high jobs. Big One man was uh, working for a health company supervising 400 people. He's a, right. oh, another thing that was an issue that always is in these cases, well, even if it's not your fault, is the motorcycle issue. Right. That's a big issue in any case. There are people that, no matter what, just think somebody that gets on a motorcycle, at the end of the day, they deserve what they get. And whether they're because they're not in a car, they don't have seatbelts and all that. And I was actually lucky. I got uh, two questions I would ask. Is one, you know, what do you think about people that ride motorcycles or do you or any family members? And people would be negative. I was able to get rid of most of them. There were a few that thought, well, you get what you take. And but others that had rode motorcycles or that were just neutral, even though the, the motorcycle issue wasn't an issue on liability. Certainly if he was in a car and got rear-ended like that, it would have been nothing like this. Right. So motorcycle in, in cases to me is a big issue. No, I mean, I have a, an uncle who is a, who is a, a anesthesiologist and he would always comment that, the, you know, they're organ providers. Or organ donors. Um, yeah, there, it's not good. I mean, I wouldn't want anyone I know riding a motorcycle, not because I, I think they're unsafe. It's just what happens if somebody else is unsafe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, so one thing I did want to talk to you about, Brian, that I noticed from reading the opening 
uh, in closing, and, and I know how frustrating this can be when you're in front of the jury and you've got, you know, your, your story and your, you know, how you're going to give your presentation, but it seemed like that the lawyer on the other side and the judge uh, really uh, were interrupting a lot in, in my mind for, you know, trying to argue that you were uh, arguing instead of, uh, in, instead of, uh, you know, just giving an overview of the evidence. And I, I thought of a lot of it, I thought, you know, was sort of, uh, ticky tacky. Um, yeah, it was, but, but you know, it's okay. And, and I'm doing it enough. I, I kind of just let it go. The judge did one or two times himself, which I like the judge. So I wasn't going to argue with him. And the other lawyer I'd been in many trials against, he tries to do that. I always tell him, you know, it's like the guy shooting the free throws, keeps making them. You're just throwing the ball away. So he has to get off his line for the shot. I said, I'm going to still make the shot, even if you throw the ball away. <laughs> right, right. What would you, uh, if you could give some advice to younger lawyers when they're facing uh, opposition like that, just uh, how you keep your cool and how you uh, stay on, deep, on target. Just take a deep breath and stay focused and don't let it affect you because they're going to do it. And I think if you'll see towards the end, that might have been in the final argument or the rebuttal, he was continuing to object. I just turned to the jury. I said, you know what? It's okay. You know, that's his job. Don't hold it against him. When he's done, I'm going to get to say what I'm going to say. I'm not going to let it affect me. Don't let it affect you. And then he kind of stopped. No, I, I actually... I actually read that and I was like, well, that's just brilliant, you know, because now, you know, it's, it's you and the jurors are, uh, are together and yeah, this guy's trying to side. stop, him, you know, well, but it's just, and Mike, believe me, I haven't always been like this, but as the more you do it and the more that I get real, I try not to let it affect me. I know it's easier to say that, but trials are emotional things. There's a lot invested by both sides, but I really think the jurors respect you if you're more civil and you're respectful for the other side even though you know you don't like what they're saying even though it might be improper you're going to get more mileage i think of being nice yeah yeah that's good advice because i was actually getting annoyed just reading the transcript i wanted to yell at somebody <laughs> so i got a long way to well, go i mean it happens when people object in trials you can't <laughs> let that affect you you can't argue and the judge was very very he's a stickler on the rules and like a, a couple times you'd see me or him the other lawyer kind of argue with the person making the objection like he'll say asked and answered i'd say well i never asked that or or so and the judge would say i don't want to hear it anymore knock it off and he was <laughs> but he and he would do the same thing to me so i wasn't the only one yeah <laughs> right so uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is when um, you, I, I read your argument uh, about, you know, putting together, uh, you know, the damages and you, you know, argued for the past medicals, the future med, the future medicals, the past earnings and the future meds. But then when you got to pain and suffering, you really broke it down into its elements and then went sort of line by line on each of the elements of pain and suffering. And, and uh, it's, it's something that we've tried to do as well. And so I was I'm very interested to see you do that. Can you talk a little bit about your, um, sure. your thought process on that? Well, you know, when I first started out trying these cases and I was, you know, asking for a lot of money, I'd just say, okay, that's 10 million or something. And jurors at the end of the case would say, well, 
10 million. And what does that mean? How do we get there? They're looking for a way or to support the number or some argument or rationale that makes it seem reasonable. And I don't know some, I've seen other lawyers do it, but I, I thought that one way, and I started in wrongful death cases using the various elements and using them to talk about the loss. Let's say you lost the, the loss of the love and all about it and the love and what was that worth and you got to put a number on it. So when you get the pain and suffering, which is my favorite parts of the case and all the different elements, one time I was going to try a case and I'm like, what does pain really mean? So then I look it up in the dictionary and then I got synonyms and I'm like, hey, this is pretty good. I mean, when you read this torture and all these synonyms of pain and then I think, oh, it's suffering and then anxiety. So I would break them all down, talk about what it actually means and then go through the specific evidence of that element and then put a value on the loss so that you're addressing each one and the jurors, it says in the instruction, you must award money for each element of which you find harm. And clearly there's harm in each one. And if you lay it out for them, I, I think that was a good way to break it down instead of saying, just give 40 million. And, and it takes more time, but it also uh, allows you to explain it better. Now in regular cases where there's a big fight on liability, you can't do it as much, but I like to spend a lot of time on damages in the trial and in the argument, even when there's a big dispute on liability because as a younger lawyer, I'd spend so much time trying to win the liability that I kind of short sold the damages. And now I feel like you, you don't want to undersell the damages at all. Yeah, it's definitely easy to get caught up in that when, especially when you're a, a younger lawyer that uh, you just want to make sure you win the case. And so you sort of leave the damages for last. And you know, or, you, or you go overlook when you're a big issue on negligence, you don't focus enough on causation. Right. You get knocked out on causation. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. I was just reading how you went through it and basically you broke down, you know, physical pain has a value and and then suffering has a value and loss of enjoyment of life has a value and uh, and disfigurement value impairment. And you just went through every element in the jury, uh, just so everybody understands when I said that the verdict was, you know, over 41 million, 
uh, 35 million of that was from pain and suffering. So that was obviously a very effective uh, method of, uh, of presenting that to the jury and worked, worked very well. Well, it also worked because he had real pain and suffering. Right. He had a real injury and he was a great plaintiff. Yeah, and absolutely. You can't undersell. I mean, the fact that he was serving our country, that he was underselling everything and that he was bouncing back and doing everything he could, not feeling sorry for himself was a big deal. Yeah. And the jurors recognized that and they, they gave him the money because he deserved it. Yeah, I mean, it can't be overstated how, uh, you know, a, a great client um, really, uh, you know, makes your case and a, and a, and a uh, uh, let's call him a difficult client can sometimes um, break your case. So um, it, it's, it's so important. Well, so, so Brian, I wanted to ask you, you um, I think you said that um, you actually did get to try the punitive damages case uh, before the case got resolved. And so I'm wondering, um, one, did you hear from the jury on what they were thinking? And then two, did you ever get a chance to talk to the jurors about what they thought of the overall trial and how things yes, were? Sure. So, yeah, what we did was um, they were going to give exactly what I said to give. And they actually did fill out the verdict form. They had the verdict of five minutes on the punitive damages. Interestingly, normally when you're trying a punitive damage case against an individual, they don't have very much money. One of the requirements in California is it's the burden of proof of the person bringing the case to prove what the financial condition of the defendant is. However, they usually don't have to give you that financial information until you've proved that there was an act that uh, entitles you to punitive damages. Then they do the bifurcation. You go to the next phase where it's about the financial condition and the award. And so in this case, when I got the documents on Sunday, for the Monday and I saw that he had about 2 million in net worth, it really changed things. And so I think I asked the jury for 25% of it, 500,000, which they were giving. And then net worth was made up of multiple homes and uh, pension and, and, and stock accounts and things like that. So that's interesting. So they don't, so you basically don't get the documents that you need or the discovery that you need about um, the financial circumstances of the defendant until that. There's a finding unless you make a motion before, but you have to show a high likelihood of success. It's very hard to get it granted. A lot of, most of my cases when there's a punitive damage award, it's against a large company. You can publicly, if they're publicly traded, you already have the information. Right. Right. Or if it's a company, they have financial statements that, that are easily obtained. Here, they just gave me a bunch of papers. I put together the financial statement for him and then put him on the witness stand and went through it with him to establish that it was all accurate. Was able to get him to admit to the, the Zillow uh, prices on the homes. Right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, which was probably, you know, in the ballpark, yeah. I think. They're in the ballpark. Yeah. Wow. So, and then as far as talking to the jurors, yes, yeah, so talking to the jurors a long time, they stayed. And of course, they loved their client. They wanted to take care of him and his wife. They, they really, really couldn't believe how much he'd been through. There were, I think, three or four jurors that wanted to give $75 million, And there were a few that wanted to give $20 million. And as usually happens, the juries work to a compromise, not a compromise verdict, but a compromise agreement where they all agree, you know, some are high, some are low. And I think it was uh, 12 to zero on most of the damages. I think 11 to one on some. 
Okay, yeah, because I saw that that uh, you can win with nine jurors, and I didn't yes. know if you. So you get you do get to know what the split is on every. Oh yeah. So what happens when the trial? They call it polling the jury, and they go right. through juror, and they say question one, you know, how did you vote? Two, three, four, whatever. So they they pull them on everything, make sure there's nine, make sure everybody agrees there's no inconsistency. Then you don't have to have the same nine on every question, though. Right. Okay. So the jurors, you know. My experience is talking to the jurors. Number one, usually whether you win or lose, the jurors are usually pretty complimentary of the lawyers, especially when you lose, they're even nicer to you. <laughs> right, because right. I don't think they want to hurt your feelings. Now, sometimes they'll tell you stuff, but I think it's better if you talk to them a little later, a days after. They may be a little more uh, forthcoming. You know, they just don't want to hurt your feelings. And when you win, of course, they tell you how great you are. So you're not really learning anything there. Yeah. But I, I really like to ask them, like, specifically, what did you think about this witness, or this witness? Or what did you think about this testimony? Or what did you think about this fact? Just to hear their take. And usually um, it's not the same as us, our take. And, you know, right. this it's amazing to me when I'll say, what about, you know, there's like some, I've been in longer trials where I thought I like really destroyed a witness on cross and that's true. What about this witness? And they went, which one was that? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know? exactly. Which guy was that? Which person was that? And you, and you, or when you, you think that something really was big and you ask them, they don't even remember it. And then they'll say things that you didn't even remember that, that, that were big to them. Right. Now, yeah. You just never... I've been in there where, there's something that you thought was bad for you that it was definitely bad for you and they got it. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 exactly. When you think it's bad, they usually think it's bad. No, I, I had one case that, that we had lost, regretfully, against a big company. And so the judge, instead of letting us, you know, uh, talk to the jurors out in the hall, brought all the lawyers back at one time to talk to the uh, to the jury and just ask our questions at one time. Yeah, I've had and, that before, too. That's the, you don't learn anything. Well, especially when you're in on the losing side. But the thing that really, you know, was frustrating is the jury was like, you know, said to the company, you know, can't you just change your practices on this? Because it seems like you guys aren't doing a very good job. And I'm like, yeah, that was that was our point, you know, that, uh, <laughs> you know, and then they and then the other another juror was like, can't you just pay him some money? And I was like, well, doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> no. And the last one I had, the last one that I tried, I actually didn't put up, I didn't do anything in front of the jury. I did like a lot of like the jury charge stuff and um, some motions and everything, but it wasn't in front of the jury. And at the end, when we talked to the jury about the verdict, which we were lucky was in our client's favor, one of the jurors said to me, she was like, yeah, you were there. You were there in court almost every day. <laughs> I was like, um, right. yeah. I was there every day. Thanks. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, let, Brian, let me ask you this. How uh, I, I, I realized this case uh, was not very long ago that you, uh, that you, you got this uh, result. So um, you're pretty fresh off of it. Um, how are the clients doing? How are, how are Mr. and Mrs. Lowe doing? They're doing great. I mean, he's really doing great. They're going to have a baby, move on with their life. They're gonna get, you know, they're financially, they're set. And, you know, he's not going to stop working. He's going to, but he's going to take care of his medical condition. He's going to continue to rehabilitate and get better. And hopefully they won't have quite the same life, but they're going to do the best they can and they're going to be successful. Yeah, no, then that's, um, that's always so great. And that's, you know, what uh what is trial lawyers that we work for um 
all the time. So, uh, uh, Brian, was there any, um, you know, I always like to ask about demonstratives because I like uh, using demonstratives in front of the jury. Was there any that you thought were particularly uh, helpful in this case or good or, or ones that didn't work as good even? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the pictures were great, but, you know, I always like to do these uh, animations of the surgeries. Right. Uh, done it here, you know, the skin uh, grafting procedure and, and what it's like, because I don't think talking about it with doctors really gives the jury the full picture. So I like to do these 3D animations of the surgeries or any medical procedures, either in the past or in the future. And I think those are very helpful. And, you know, obviously we had the videotapes from the three uh, gas stations we were able to get early on that showed different views of the whole collision. It's huge having videotape evidence. And it's out there quite more and more today, and we're able to get it in, in a lot of our cases. That was very instrumental. Yeah, it's so important to be, uh, you know, move as quick as possible to try and get those, uh, those video cameras, uh, if at all possible. Um, and I love that idea about the doctors because, you know, usually doctors are not the best at describing the procedures they do. And so if a doctor might tell you you did a skin graft and make it sound like it's no big deal. When well, and they're surgeons. I mean, they, it is to them. It isn't that big a deal. They do right. it every day. It's just, you know, like lawyers taking a deposition, they're doing a, a, a they're transplanting the latissimus muscle of the hamstring and it's no big deal. He, ho, that was the next, next surgery. But we don't do that, and we need to understand that and to really convey that message to the jury. I think the animation and stop and explain it helps. Yeah, and you know, get the significance of what it really is. I read that about them transferring the latissimus dorsi to the the uh, hamstring. I mean, I've never heard of that before. Uh, how did that? Uh, how I mean, how it's did that okay, go? but he's not going to be able to run or anything. But I mean, it is function. I mean, you should see the. One of that was my, I wouldn't say my favorite, but certainly the, the most graphic photograph was him laying on his back, looking like someone had taken a knife and just took the chunk of the hamstring out of the leg. Oh, just a big divot in the back of his leg. Oh. Well, uh, one of the last things I want to ask you about, Brian, and you've been so generous with your time, um, it, Part of the verdict that you got was uh, $2 million in loss of consortium. And uh, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how you presented sure. that to the jury. Well, I was trying to get a lot more of that. That's a tough <laughs> claim. And, but the defense did do me a favor by saying they should award zero for the loss of consortium. And, and I think that's a tough thing. And I tried in the board dire talking about, you know, in happiness and in sickness and in health and, the marriage vows, and a lot of people do believe that that's part of your marriage vow, and there shouldn't be a case or a lawsuit or money being awarded for that, and that just goes along with the deal. But in Vordar, I was able to get some jurors off for cause that just couldn't get that belief out of their mind, and still it's hard. I mean, I on occasions I've had some large ones, but it's a pretty hard claim because of that preconceived notion that it's part of your marriage that if something happens to your spouse, that's your duty and job to take care of them. I'm really working right. on that more and more because I do see what a big part of the, the case it is and what a big loss and change it is for the spouse. So getting people to be open to that is harder and putting on the evidence is hard too. 
Yeah, I mean, it's something that we, you know, we struggle with uh, in every case. But I mean, it, it, if you can really get the, the jury to latch on to the fact that, you know, it, it affects, sometimes it affects the spouse in ways that you'd never, you know, it, oh, it affects 100%. the victim. Absolutely. And, uh, and then that's, uh, you know, just as life altering. Um, and so yes, and also don't like, obviously, you don't want to have the other spouse in there hearing their spouse talking about their relationship. And I right. talked to the jurors about that before. Okay. Well, um, well, Brian, uh, again, we really appreciate your time. And uh, I, I just want to remind the audience that we've been talking about the Lowe versus Southern California Gas Company and Dominic Consolazio uh, case that was uh, tried by Brian Panish and his team at uh, Panache and Boyle out of Los Angeles, California. And uh, their website is www.psblaw.com and uh, sorry Ivana I use the www <laughs> it's a habit I know, I know we don't need to but uh, I know I, I know it. you just like you wanted to show off your pronunciation of Dominic Consolazio and <laughs> right. say www so right good job. right that's exactly right <laughs> Well, uh, uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time, and uh, and thank you for uh, spending uh, this hour with us talking about your case and uh, and just a fabulous result. And uh, congratulations to you and your team and to the Lowe's. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been my pleasure to be a part of this. Thank All right, thanks, Brian. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.